Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the flip side of the so-called missing white woman syndrome, and highlight the structural legacies of colonialism that have put indigenous communities in North America at the greatest risk of murder and rape among all demographics in the U.S. and Canada. Clips today are from Al Jazeera English, the PBS NewsHour, GBH News, Let's Talk Native with John Kane, AJ Plus, The Red Nation Podcast, Nonviolence International New York, and Democracy Now! Tina Russell is showing us some of the places where she's gone to search for her niece, Alyssa. See, we had search parties through all this area over here, all these woods, because I actually had a dream I found her body back there. Why do you keep the flyers in the car? Um, I never know when I need to make copies. I'll meet somebody and talk to them about Alyssa and hand them a flyer. Sometimes it's just the beach in the park. Me and my cousins will go to the beach and just walk along the beach handing out flyers. Let me grab that real quick. It's been just over 10 years since Alyssa's family saw or heard from her. She was 21. And so you have the red dress. Yes, so I made this red dress. I'm eventually going to put a charm on it and put it on a skirt that I'm making for myself right now. No teeth. <laughs> that is the cutest picture that ever, and she did not like this picture. She did not appreciate Why that not? picture because of her teeth. It was a chaotic time for the family back then. Alyssa's mother was dying. Alyssa's mom is right here, and this is Alyssa's brother, Corey. He lives mm-hmm. in Arizona. We knew she wasn't going to be there much longer, and uh, I told Alyssa, I talked to her on the phone. She's like, okay, Grandma, I'm on my way. And she, in all the years her mom was sick, she was always there. She wouldn't just go somewhere and not show up. That was the last time Barbara or anyone from the family spoke to her. A few days later, Alyssa's mother died, and there was still no word from Alyssa. Everything happened so fast with my sister being sick, and Alyssa, it's like, There were so many blurs. We were just thrown into a turmoil. Did any witnesses come forward? There was a witness that said that they saw Alyssa talking to somebody in a green truck um, with out-of-state plates. That was one of the only leads that turned up after Alyssa was last heard from. A witness said they saw her talking to a man in a green truck at this intersection. Another important development in the case was that the Kent police received a 911 call from Alyssa's cell phone. Sergeant Tim Ford was one of the original detectives on Alyssa's case and heard the 911 call. It almost like sounded like she was saying, help me. But the call cut, and police were unable to pinpoint a location. It just really bothers me, especially with that 911 call. When you listen to it, you know, and you can, kind of, you can hear her voice, and you know that that's the last maybe the last time she was ever spoken. And so it bothers me that we were just never able to get any credible evidence pointing to anybody. With no answers from authorities, the family, including Alyssa's little brother, Jamar, are left wondering what happened. That's pretty. Whose dog is that? Mine. Uh, A little ankle biter. If she's still alive or gone. Every time somebody, they find a body, Every single time there's a body found on the news, there's a pause. 
you, 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 it's literally like you're dead for a moment because you have to wonder, is it Alyssa? I think I've called the coroner more than anybody should in a lifetime. The family can only search, wait, and hope, including Alyssa's daughter, who was only three years old when she went missing. She had this big string of beads and she would hang it on the door so in case her mom came home, she could hear the beads rattling. We don't know what happened, so we can't heal. For relatives of people who go missing, finding closure is often impossible. And stories like Alyssa's are all too common in the United States, where Native Americans go missing at a disproportionately high rate. Two hours away from where Alyssa was last seen is the Yakima Nation. We have a very horrible thing that has come to our reservation. A lot of pain and hurt has been done with our people. And our hope and our prayer is that the word is reaching those that need to put the necessary things in place to help help those of you that are still looking down the road looking for your... My name is Roxanne White and I'm from here and I am Yakima and I'm Nez first and I'm the what you call the main organizer of this event but I'm more than an organizer um, I'm a survivor I'm a family member today this is about our community our families our loved ones People are meeting here to raise money for the search efforts of Rosunda Strong, a 31-year-old mother of four who went missing in October. She's been missing since then. She'd never leave home without telling us. But I'm going to be her voice until I find her. Across the country, indigenous communities have been trying to draw attention to cases like Rosinda's. But advocates and family members have started to raise awareness about the high rates of violence that disproportionately impact indigenous communities. Part of the problem is that government agencies don't have comprehensive data on how many people in the U.S. are missing. We can't solve problems we don't track. Uh, we can't prevent violence that we don't bother to pay attention to. Anita Lucchese is a doctoral student who has built a database to keep track of how many Indigenous women in the U.S. and Canada are missing and have been murdered. Whatever information we get is just kind of handed to us with no context or explanation. Um, and there's never any opportunity to include us in that data collection or analysis process. Um, so really what we're trying to do is find and gather as much information as possible um, to support tribes and Native communities in making you know, effective data-driven decisions on how to protect our women and girls. Anita has documented over 1,800 cases in the U.S. dating back to 1900. But 75% of the cases are just from the past two decades. People ask me a lot, um, you know, why are, why, are, why are Native women going missing or being murdered? What's the reason? And, and the reality is, unfortunately, there is no one reason. Um, I think the one unifying factor would be colonialism and ongoing colonial occupation. Um, it teaches people, whether you know, Native or non-Native, it teaches folks to um, undervalue Native women, to see us as less than human, to see us as exotic and sexy and easy to use and abuse. When you talk to families, are there any commonalities um, in their experiences with law enforcement? I think, you know, one general commonality that most families experience is that law enforcement um, are not helpful. 
especially in the beginning hours when it matters most. Um, so whether someone has gone missing or has been killed, usually there's very little communication with families. Um, families are often uh, not made to feel as if they're being heard. And I know that, that these banners are medicine. This, this making, making Rescinda visible and making people see her. And this is why we do what we do. Because we want all the families to know that they're not alone. Every family who has somebody who's missing um, or who has experienced that at one point or another, they know the scale and the magnitude of that grief and confusion and frustration th that comes with the process of trying to search and advocate for a missing loved one. Imagine that tenfold, fiftyfold, a million, like we don't know. The ripple effect is so much bigger than any of us are even able to measure. Wyoming alone, 710 indigenous people were reported missing between 2011 and 2020. In fact, although indigenous people make up only 3% of the state's population, they accounted for more than 21% of homicide victims over the last decade. And the problem is not limited to Wyoming. Native women are murdered at rates 10 times the national average, a pattern that's reflected in a report from Abigail Echo Hawk. She's the chief research officer for the Seattle Indian Health Board and the director of the Urban Indian Health Institute. She joins me now. Abigail, welcome to the News Hour. Thank you for making the time. You have called it a crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Just give us a sense of scale and scope. What are we talking about? We're talking about a crisis that didn't just start five years ago, 10 years ago, but one that has started and has been going on for more than hundreds of years. We have seen Native women go missing and murdered at astronomical rates. But despite knowing this within our communities and having the stories, we see an underreporting of them in the, in the data, which makes it harder for us to advocate for and to show the disparity that exists in our communities and the loss of our loved ones. Tell me why that underreporting is happening. What part of the system is failing? In 2018, my organization put out a report in which we found that law enforcement agencies were either not collecting race and ethnicity of victims, we found database systems that would default to white if race and ethnicity wasn't collected, or they would visually look at somebody and decide what their race and ethnicity is. Um, and as a result of that, we are finding a complete underreporting. And in fact, I've actually seen Native families having to fight to have their young relatives classified correctly because somebody mistook them for another race and they weren't reported as American Indian or Alaska Native. It's a systematic problem, and as a result of that, we have all of the stories of our communities, but we fight to show it in the data. Tell me about what you hear from families um, about their missing loved ones, their murdered loved ones. What kind of stories do you hear from them about the issues they run into in reporting this and in getting justice? We often will hear stories of individuals who attempt to report their loved ones missing, and officers will tell them, well, maybe she just ran away. Was she out drinking? Does she do sex work? We see the prejudices and stereotypes against indigenous peoples and people of color play out in the underreporting because nobody's listening to us. We also see a maze of jurisdiction that exists only for indigenous peoples in this country because of the laws that exist on tribal lands. I worked with a family where they actually spent 
three days of law enforcement trying to decide who had jurisdiction. And in that three days, their loved one remained missing and nobody was looking for them. You mentioned these jurisdictional issues and a lot of people think, well, that's just limited to when you're talking about tribal lands versus non-tribal lands. But your report was based on 71 urban cities across 29 states. So is this an issue regardless of where you live? Absolutely. And we see this systematic issue playing out as a result of institutional and structural racism. In 2018, I put it out another report related to high rates of sexual violence against American Indian, Alaska Native women in the city of Seattle. Out of the 94% of the women we talked to, 94% of them had been sexually assaulted in their lifetime, but only 8% of them saw a conviction of their rapist within the justice systems. We see a lack of accountability. We see a lack of investigation. And again, the systematic issues that place the blame of our victimization on our community instead of looking at why are we being targeted and why are we being victimized at such high rates. Abigail, we're talking about this because of this intense media interest in the case of Gabby Petito. It's part of what our, our Late News Hour anchor and colleague Gwen Eiffel once referred to as missing white women's syndrome, right? The spotlight that's granted to white women, but not often to women of color. Your organization has actually studied that, right? The comparison between how these stories are treated. What did you find? In our report, we actually found of the cases that we looked at, 95% of them weren't covered in the media. And this didn't mean that there weren't videos. It didn't mean that there wasn't active ways to put this in the media. It's just nobody's cared. Um, and I actually contributed to the report in Wyoming that showed more than 700 people missing. And that report, which came out in January of this year, again, had very little coverage. And as the indigenous community, we mourn for the family of anybody whose loved one goes missing and murdered. But what we demand is equity in this kind of coverage because the lives of our women also matter. In just a few seconds we have left, what does it take to fix this, to change this? We need to see not only media coverage, but we need to see changes in policies. We need to see programming and interventions to understand that as Native women and Native people, we aren't higher risk of going missing and murdered because there's something wrong with us. We're at higher risk because there are systems of inequity in this country that place us at higher risk. And those are the systems we have to address. And it's going to take the entire community of the United States to come together and do that with us. I mentioned missing white woman syndrome and compare it with, I guess, ignore all other missing women syndrome. Is this a result of lack of diversity in newsrooms, giving the customers what they want, or just flat out racism? You know, I think it's lack of diversity in newsrooms. I think it's a sort of, I mean, look, the Gabby Petito story didn't start in newsrooms, right? It started on the internet. It did. So- I think the cause there is, you know, a culture that prizes beautiful, very thin white women, right? But I also think it's a culture that prizes a certain kind of internet celebrity. And so I think those two things together sort of created a sensation. But it's an extremely good opportunity for us to say, we should be looking at all of these other women who've disappeared and the people, you know, that this is not a phenomenon, you know, that this is a larger phenomenon. The thing I've been so struck by is just what a bad job the police have yeah. done 
and you know that they are just not aware of what domestic violence looks like i mean if that's what's happened here and so that's what strikes me uh, I, I want to get back to the cops in just a couple of seconds. I have to say, Raquel, if I, gave, I was given that list of three, I would have put racism at the top. And it's in part because we've all read the statistics now coming out of Wyoming where Petito's body was found, what, 710 indigenous women and girls missing in the last, uh, in the last decade. You know the parents of some of those women and girls and the pain they've suffered from the loss and the pain they've suffered from their loss being ignored. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it's um, it's an immeasurable amount of pain and frustration that, that we hear about um, at centers like mine and across the country. You know, there's, there's a lack of um, awareness around who we are, the fact that we exist. So if we, you know, don't exist in in somebody's world, how can our data be important? How can the hospitals and the police and the other service centers know to ask whether or not a woman coming to them in crisis or a person coming to them in crisis is Native American? And then when you get to the part of of working with police, there's very little tribal liaisons. Um, There are very little consultations with um, uh, DBSA groups that can support the family through that trauma um, as they as they seek answers. We've had a, a, a woman in our service area in Boston whose daughter was murdered in 2018 and she still lacks answers. She can't get an answer from the police, from the coroner's office, and she has written every office that she can think of. We've supported her in this, but yet there are still no answers. And that's what it comes down to. Our families are doing the work of seeking um, resolution to what's going on and and finding their loved ones before they end up murdered. Uh, And there's just no support. You know, Molly, you a perfect segue. You wrote a piece on exactly that, saying that police are more interested in solving cases like this that involve pretty white women. I mean, that is a fact, is it not? Yeah, I think the policing in America is very, very racist. And I think we see that. And we also see that it's very misogynistic, right? I mean, you see these traffic stop videos and you they he convinced the police that he was being abused and then they let them go. I mean, that's preposterous. Well, I want to correct you, if I may, or amend what you say. When you say let them go, their inability, even if there was not racism, to cope with a mental health crisis when they right. determine that she may have been the aggressor, he gets to go to a hotel and a woman who is in crisis is told to sleep by herself in her van in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I think making the argument that all of America has been talking about, do we need more mental health and less policing? Yes. You know? No. Cl- yeah. I mean, clearly. But I also think that what has happened to indigenous women is an absolute travesty. And if you look at, I mean, the area where she was found, where Gabby Petito was found, is this area where hundreds yeah. of you know, young, and a lot of them are children, uh, younger children. And, you know, the return rate is about 20%. Is about, there's about 20% that never are returned. Yeah. So if you think about that, that's crazy numbers. And I've read more statistics that are even more upsetting. And our police are failing these women. 
And I think it's, you know, very terrible. It is terrible. Raquel, getting back to the mother, the family you mentioned a minute ago here, was there an attempt to reach out to the media to say, because I think it's pretty clear, police may pay more attention when there's pressure because there are more eyeballs on the story. Was there an effort to reach out to the media that was thwarted or was there not? I think there was some effort, but it's also really hard, I think, to capture the media's attention attention when you look at everything that's going on at any given point. Um, you know, if, if one family is reaching out for help, that doesn't get them very far um, through through the newsroom. Um, so so starting with you, Raquel, and then I'll go to somebody in the media. Molly, how do we reform ourselves? I don't mean you. I mean, we. How do we become more sensitized to treating all women and girls equally when it comes to issues like that? And I think a lot trickles down from that, including the police issues that Molly raised a minute ago. How do we reform ourselves, Ra- uh, uh, Raquel? I think it starts with inclusion. You know, Molly's absolutely right in that. Um, I actually grew up around uh, news stations and uh, know very well the hardships that people of color go through in those spaces yeah. um, and and the lack of support and, and avenues that they have for correction when issues do come up. And when you are coming into a space like that um, and you're encountering racism in your workplace, if there are no supports, you're going to go elsewhere. You're going to try to start your own publications. You're going to yeah. go into a completely different sector. Um, and, and that has happened. That's something that, that our media needs to reckon with and figure out, you know, how do we, how do we actually attract and fairly pay people of color? Are we getting better at that, Molly? You know, I don't know because I'm not, I mean, I, I hope we are. I think there's more effort towards it, but we have a really long way to go. I mean, I think it's really important when we talk about this Gabby Petito story, because there are so many women. What I'm curious about, too, is the new secretary of the interior has a new uh, initiative to focus on indigenous women who have been kidnapped. I'm curious to know what you think about that. I think it's wonderful that we finally have representation at the leadership of uh, the Department of the Interior. The fact that we haven't is, quite frankly, you know, a big part of why we're in this situation now. But before um, Deb Holland came into that position, the onus was on Native communities. There were people all across the country who were scrambling and had a continued scramble to get data each by each state and by each municipality. And so what Deb is doing is trying to create that national or trying to support the, the, the resourcing of a national framework that can capture that data. We depend heavily on memberships to fund the production of this show because having principles in the attention economy is bound to cost you. And that's definitely been the case for us. When the company that was selling ads for us way back demanded that we allow our listeners to be tracked and hyper-targeted with manipulative ads, we refused because we find that to be blatantly unethical and in many countries illegal when it's done without the ability to opt in or out, which is the case for all podcasts. Now, because many advertisers have gotten used to being able to hyper-target podcast listeners through other less scrupulous shows, 
they're less willing to advertise with integrity on shows like ours. This has really been squeezing our finances and making every single supporting member we have that much more critical to our ability to produce this show. If you are a member, thank you once again. If you want to support the work we do, please consider becoming a member at bestofleft.com support. If you'd like to advertise with integrity to our audience while protecting everyone's privacy, you can reach me directly at j at bestofleft.com. Thanks, as always, for your support. There are a lot of issues that are related to this historically. And of course, you know, I've talked a lot about residential schools, but but if you go back to the, again, the origins of, of colonization, and in fact, even before colonization, what they considered the, the discovery era, what, what is clear is that Native women in particular uh, became really victimized. Uh, there was actually a rape culture that came. I mean, you, you can find it detailed even in Columbus's journal and, and some of the other folks who were um, along with, with him about the violence that they were perpetrating against women. Uh, so beyond using women uh, and men for, for slaves, there was uh, women in particular. Columbus boasted about how much money he could get for girls as young as nine and, and nine and 10 by taking them back to, to Spain to be essentially sex slaves. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, uh, you know, had, had children with his slaves and what's oftentimes missed in the, in the conversation about, chattel slavery is how much uh, women were used, not just native men, but women were used in that, in that, in that industry. So I think it's really important that people understand the origins that bring us to the problem that we're now confronting with missing and murdered indigenous women. And it's, and it's vast and it's pervasive. It's, you know, much of this attention came from uh, uh, originally from on the Canadian side, that's where most of the attention was was brought to missing and murdered Indigenous women. Because even on the Canadian side, there was even more remoteness. There, there's actually one highway uh, that they call the Highway of Tears, um, because it, it was just known for for women being kidnapped and taken across you know, Alberta and, and some of the the areas of Western Canada. But the remoteness of our territories and and again, our territories are remote by design. We're pushed off to to parcels of land that, you know, frankly, they, you know, the United States or Canada thought was was worthless. And though the, the remoteness of our communities actually made our our women actually even more vulnerable than the men. And and not that our people weren't vulnerable because of that the remoteness anyway, especially as it came to trying to eke out, you know, some sort of subsistence living. But the, the, the women in particular w- would be vulnerable because the extractive industries and some of the other industries that would, would cause men to leave their families and, and go into some of these more wilderness areas, once they were away from their, their families, it was like a whole other world opened up to them, one where they, they weren't, didn't have to abide by the, the rules to the extent that, that they had rules of civil society, those rules disappeared once they were quote unquote in Indian country. So this development of man camps that went along with many of the extractive industries and not just, you know, extracting from the ground, whether we're talking about timber logging, there were so 
such a prevalence of of men who were working in these really male dominated industries away from their families if they had families where the closest female companionship they could uh, they could grab was was from native territories and it wasn't look it wasn't just companionship it was it was driven in that in that same kind of rape culture but i think it's important that people realize just how much how vulnerable women had become because of the way industries pushed themselves into native territories. And oftentimes these industries were very, very uh, unregulated, both in terms of what they were actually doing with the industry, but their, but their behavior in, in an area. And of course, there were also not going to be any law enforcement resources. One of the biggest problems that we, we have was the, was the, was the pattern of, of apathy that came from from police, whether it was local police, if there even was a local police force, or whether it was state police or whether it was federal law enforcement, like the FBI. Many women, nobody would believe a story of, of a woman who would turn up missing. You know, they would always assume automatically, oh, that's just a runaway. And then when when missing women's body uh, body would show up, there would also be um, an apathy amongst the, the 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 coroners and and those who would be investigating the death and say, "Well, it looks like an accident." So, cause of death would oftentimes be listed as accidental. This is really what has been the experience. I mean, oftentimes uh, the other thing would be the uh, the race would also oftentimes be listed as just others, you know, uh, as an other race. So, so the, giving ga- gathering the data associated with with missing and murdered indigenous women became increasingly care, uh, difficult. Not, and, and it wasn't just the apathy from the police that would contribute to some of this problem. Sometimes it would be the participation of police. Look, in most of the, the, the most violent circumstances that, that people, you know, uh, oppressed people experience, the law enforcement has oftentimes been complicit. And we've got case after case after case and on both the U.S. and Canadian side where, where the police themselves were part of the uh, were, were part of the, the perps involved in, in, in kidnappings or the murder of, uh, of indigenous women. I, and I'm not going to you know, say out of hand that, uh, that police are solely responsible, but there have been too many instances where the, where the police had participated in this. So this is kind of where we're at. And, and let me just give you some basic numbers. Native women are 10 times more likely to be killed than the national average. And this is the United States. So if you figure out the likelihood of being, being murdered, you know, or, 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 or killed via manslaughter or whatever, to be the victim of a homicide, Native women are 10 times more likely than anybody else in, in the United States. I mean, think about that. 10 times more likely. Half of all Native women will have experienced some form of violence, domestic violence or, or violence in, in their lives. And and I think it's, it, it was, as, from what I recall, it was as high as 40% of all women will experience some form of sexual violence. So, I mean, we live in an era where now there's been a lot more attention given to like Me Too and some of the, the sexual violence against women, but Native women still aren't getting the attention. Your sister went missing 10 years ago. Every time you come out to this river, do you wonder if you'll recover her body? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. That's 
That's a reality. You, know, you come across remains and you don't know if they're human or not, or if they're your sister. Like, it's an emotional roller coaster because you just never know. Three other women in Bernadette's family have gone missing or been murdered. Only one case has been solved. Should it be the police doing this? Absolutely, it should be. Policing is an issue in this country. We were on the streets, putting up posters, talking to people, going to different organizations, going to different places we knew Claudette went to. You know, we were basically doing the police job for them, and no family should have to do that. The Winnipeg police declined to speak with us on camera or give us a statement. Beam me up the bell tower is an anti-violence movement, and we exist to build community. Michael Champagne is an activist who organizes weekly anti-violence rallies in Winnipeg's primarily indigenous North End neighborhood. A new mural dedicated to missing and murdered women has just been painted in this weekly meeting place. It's nice that we have these beautiful images in our community, but it's frustrating that they have to be memorial images. I wanted to know why it was necessary to hold weekly anti-violence rallies here. There was a time when in a year, we had over 52 vigils, funerals, hospital room visits, and our, the same group of people got together, but always centered around the negative things. We need to host weekly anti-violence here to send a message, not only to the community, but to the people that prey on our community. And our message is that we are united. Michael grew up in the child welfare system here and says that one out of six children in this neighborhood are currently in the care of the system. 7% of children across Canada are Indigenous, but they make up nearly half of all foster children in the country. The government cites poverty or lack of adequate food or housing as reasons for separating them from their birth families. What connections do you see between the child welfare system and the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women? In the child welfare system, often what ends up happening is a devaluing of Indigenous life especially for Indigenous women and girls. As they age out of care, they turn 18, uh, unequipped with life skills, severed from their biological families or their home communities. They're at risk of homelessness, harmful substance use, sexual exploitation. Part of the reason why we have such difficulties in child welfare today is that many of those children right now are actually children, like me, of Indian residential school survivors. From the 1840s to the mid-1990s, some 150,000 Indigenous children were removed from their families and sent to church and government-run Indian residential schools. Their aim was to kill the Indian in the child by assimilating them into dominant Canadian culture. Many children suffered emotional, physical, and sexual abuse while attending these schools. As we know now, Indian residential schools was a failed experiment that did a lot more harm than it did good. And unfortunately, that, that history of family separation over so many generations continues to this day with child welfare. It's 12.30 a.m. here in the North End neighborhood in Winnipeg, and we've joined this midnight medicine walk organized by the community to reach out to women here that are being sexually exploited, to offer them prayers and medicine and let them know that they're being watched after. And also, the march is to send a message to the men who prey on them that they're being watched by the community. Lauren Chopek is the founder of The Walk. She was once a missing Indigenous woman herself. Lauren ran away from home as a teenager and was trafficked on these streets where she narrowly escaped a serial killer. How did the idea of the Midnight Medicine Walk come about? Through my own experiences um, of being exploited, I wanted to do something to acknowledge those people as who they actually really are and acknowledge their spirits, honor their spirits instead of 
just walking past them every day or just driving past them every day thinking of them as homeless people or as prostitutes because that's not who they are. Tell me about some of the interactions you have with these women that you're reaching out to on the streets and what really sticks with you. They tear up, those women, because they're finally being recognized. And they might not feel like they deserve that that's the kind of standing ovation that we give them when we stop and we sing for the this much. They feel like they don't deserve it, but they do. And they're finally being paid attention to. Is this process really healing for you? It is, it is really healing for me. Out of all those negative experiences I had as a young girl being sexually exploited, now people recognize me and they respect me for those things, I guess, but like in a different way because now I'm, I turned it into something beautiful, I guess. We were told that no one takes this road at night unless they're looking for sex. What message are you guys sending to the men out there who prey on these vulnerable women? That we see what's going on and that we don't believe that our people deserve it. I want them to see the community coming together. Because the police's response has been insufficient, Indigenous activists have been stepping up in various ways to ensure the safety of their community members and streets. Yep. We've got 14, right? James Favel is the executive director of the Bear Clan Patrol, a community safety patrol that operates in some of Winnipeg's toughest neighborhoods five to six nights a week. When we talk about the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and, and girls here in this country, do you see your work as trying to put an end to that in a small well, that's way? that's exactly why we started. In the wake of what happened with Tina Fontaine, I just wasn't prepared to sit around and watch anymore. I had to do something so that I could at least sleep at night and, and my conscience be clear. And so uh, we started up with 12 volunteers in, in 2014, and now we have 1,200. How does that make you feel? It's pretty f***ing good. Tell me a little bit more about the sexual exploitation you see on these streets. Well, I mean, it's, yeah, the prostitution here, the, the, it's, it was pervasive for a very long time, and there was no, uh, nobody doing anything about it. It was like it was permitted in this area, you know, and for, for us in, here in this community, that's not, a, that's not suitable, right? We have, uh, we have the, the, the exploited women you know, standing up against Buddy's fence, you know, and the kids are playing in the yard, and we've got John's coming. And these guys do not discriminate. They go after anybody and everybody. They don't care if you're 10 years old or if you're 40 years old. issued a press release that morning from the White House proclaiming it to be that day, um, assuming he's probably going to make it a national day every year. But he wrote a long press release about his commitment uh, to addressing MMIW, G2R, and kind of the kind of resources that his administration is going to be throwing at it. Um, I think Biden's response is probably like an indication of the success of the grassroots mobilization over the last decade to 15 years. I would say um, that Native women have been doing on the ground around it. And so the state is now responding, which, you know, is always like a good thing. But uh, we're going to talk a bit more critically about these types of policy responses from on high, um, just given the fact that the Red Nation is a grassroots Native women-led organization. Um, and we have, I think, a very particular perspective on this issue. But I just wanted to go through a few things that uh, Biden has proposed. He did talk about like wanting to address the quote-unquote underlying issues that cause Native women um, to spirit and just our relatives, Native people, 
to go missing, um, to disappear and to be murdered at much higher rates than other, you know, demographics in uh, so-called United States and Canada. So he listed um, sexual violence, human trafficking, domestic violence, violent crime, systemic racism, economic disparities and substance use and addiction as underlying causes. And I'm like, yeah, but you didn't use the word colonialism. (laughs) So like that is the actually the underlying condition. Or what is it when they were talking about the pandemic? That's the pre existing condition that created the context for much higher rates of contraction and death from COVID 19 um, in Native communities, um, especially Cheyenne and my nation, um, the Navajo Nation. And then I was also like reading through it and I was like, you also didn't talk about land back. <laughs> so if you're going to talk about the underlying conditions that cause MMIWG2R, you have to talk about colonialism, you have to talk about land back. Of course, like, the largest settler empire in the history of the world is not going to like come clean, right? About the fact that those are the underlying and pre-existing conditions. So yeah, I did not see that in here. I've also not seen really either of those two things in Deb Holland's PR about the murdered and the missing and murdered unit that she has established in the Department of the Interior. But yeah, Elena, go for it. And the other thing that nobody wants to mention, um, including Deb Holland, she's mentioned it uh, a couple of times, but nobody talks about resource extraction and the, the connection between resource extraction on native land and, um, the higher rates of murdered and missing indigenous women. And particularly Biden's not going to mention that, um, it, because without resource extraction, the, the U.S. economy would simply grind to a halt. And that's capitalism which is also part of um, colonialism and um, in, in opposition to the land back. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think often when we talk about resource extraction, you know, we still live in the era. I think we live in like a transitional era when it comes to like the resources that are being extracted. Right. So we're kind of in a transition from like the extraction of so-called dirty resources like coal um, or oil and gas, for example, and transitioning to like green or clean resources but I keep bringing this up and it seems to be a revelation for non-native people. So I'm just going to say it again, because apparently it really just needs to be like hammered home, but like green energy or clean energies, the raw materials to create a solar panel or like an electric car or whatever, like fucking Elon Musk is doing still needs to be extracted from somewhere to be turned into a commodity to be sold on the green capitalist market. And so if something that was super recent this spring was, um, you know, the call out of San Carlos Apache to save Oak Flat, which was, you know, has been going on for the last six years since 2015. And the reason why they need to save Oak Flat is because Rio Tinto, which is a multinational copper mining, right, corporation wants to go in and desecrate Oak Flat in order to harvest copper. And copper is considered a clean energy resource, right, that goes into things like I don't even know, car batteries. I don't know. It goes into like the quote unquote renewable energy products that are kind of all the rage right now in this transition to green energy. And so it doesn't matter if it's dirty energy or clean energy, it's still extraction and it's still a violation of indigenous treaty rights and land rights. You know, we're still trying to protect sacred sites. Oh, it goes into solar shy, which are kind of all the rage right now. Like the Navajo Nation just signed a deal Uh, I think it was like last year to uh, construct a ginormous solar farm. So anyway, what this has to do, right, with MMIWG2R is historically Native women who come from Indigenous communities that have 
you know, bared the mate, the primary burden of the violence to the land that resource extraction brings, right? The total devastation, the pollution, the environmental racism. They are the women who started the movement for MMIWG2R. And they have always argued that the violence that happens to the land happens to our bodies and vice versa. And so you can't talk about violence against Native women and against the bodies of our relatives if you're not going to talk about the violence against the land. And for us, primarily, that has happened in the form of resource extraction over the last, I would say, about 80 to 90 years. That's been the primary form of colonial and capitalist violence against Indigenous lands. So that's just why we wanted to bring that up. And kind of, you know, related to how a lot of mainstream people who've popularized the MMIWGR2 movement, um, including government officials, have not addressed, right? So they haven't addressed resource extraction, but there's also this move. Um, and so Biden's press release, but then also the, mur- the missing and murdered unit um, that Holland has established, newly established in the Department of the Interior, is like all about throwing like even more police. It's just like throwing a bunch of cops at the issue. And it's just like, we're not just going to have like, you know, tribal cops, we're going to have tribal cops and federal cops and state cops and city cops and private cops, and like all kinds of cops working together, you know, to like try to address this issue. And we're very critical of this move because it's like literally all that's on offer is just like more policing, right, to try to end or to decrease the numbers of MMIWG2R. And of course, we know, like the police are part of the problem, you know, like when the police are in native communities, they just they escalate situations, they kill our people, Uh, our people are killed by cops at higher rates than any other population in the entire country. We don't call the cops when people are struggling at home, even when we're having like domestic violence situations, because we know that if we call the cops, the likelihood of them killing somebody in our family is really high. You know, they harass people on the street all the time. Um, we actually just had a vigil for Jolene Nez, who um, died in custody because the cops did not think her life was worth enough, you know, to take care of her while she was in custody. And so police simply, they just can't be the answer to this issue, right? They just can't. We've just heard clips today, starting with Al Jazeera English telling the story of one missing person search and the legacy of colonialism that led to it. The PBS NewsHour discussed the reasons why missing Native persons go underreported. GBH News explored the phenomenon of the missing white woman syndrome. John Kane on Let's Talk Native gave the history and context of colonization, rape culture, and extractive industries in the pattern of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. AJ Plus made the connection between the legacy of residential schools, the modern child welfare system, and the need for ongoing anti-violence campaigns. And the Red Nation podcast discussed the Biden administration's response to the MMIWG2S movement. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Nonviolent International New York explaining the complicated nature of jurisdictional law between the U.S. and tribal lands that actually incentivizes non-natives to commit crimes on tribal land. And Democracy Now! discussed the organization Red Nation's demands in the context of the federal infrastructure bill. 
to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, I subscribe to a subreddit that has lately had some of its sentiment and content spilling over into other realms of the internet. And since there are potentially many of you best of left subscribers who might not frequent Reddit or social media in general, I wanted to shine a spotlight on the growing movement of r slash anti-work. Now, just based on the name, there are some of you who would assume that the community must just want to be lazy and do nothing. But in actuality, the core principle behind r slash anti-work is that humans are not just meant to exist for work. It is normal and, in fact, totally reasonable for you to want to spend time outside of work focusing on yourself, your hobbies, your family, or any other number of activities that don't include making money. Furthermore, during the time which you do work, you are entitled to fair compensation and treatment. Essentially, you and your time are worth more than what you can offer to an employer. For those of you who are not aware, there is something of an unorganized labor movement going on right now, as cost of living has inflated into a bloated late capitalist nightmare, wages have not kept up. So when conditions at work become awful and the managers or owners ask more and more of their employees, many people are simply walking away from it. Some people are framing this as people don't want to work, but I have personal experience to hopefully clarify this incorrect assumption. I work for a company, which I will not be naming for my own safety, but honestly, you could throw a dart at any corporate list and this would probably fit their description pretty well, which over the last couple of decades has been trimming its employee benefits and working conditions. But it's been really since the start of the pandemic that it has really showcased their contempt for their workers. We are chronically understaffed, but not because people don't want to work. The company has designed that narrative. In fact, they cut their hours during the last year. They have added more overall responsibilities and scheduled only the barest of barebone staff. They have made record profits. Can you guess what has happened to the pay? Oh, they increased the starting pay just a little recently, but only to those who are just now starting and anyone who has been working before then won't be receiving a fair wage adjustment for experience or time. Bonus, it's the retail sector where it has become the norm to expect yelling and cussing from customers daily which has only added to mental health deterioration for most everyone working there. Why wouldn't someone who has the ability to do so walk away and seek better pastures or at the very least demand more? More pay, more benefits, more respect, anything. So why do I still work there? Well, currently in my own personal situation, the benefits outweigh the negatives for me, but I can assure you I am already making plans for hopefully the near future. So if you were waiting on a moment where you wanted to negotiate better terms for yourself or maybe even organize, now might be that moment. I don't know how long this will last. And to those of you who feel like you don't deserve to ask for more, that's ridiculous. You have been conditioned to believe you should feel grateful for crumbs. In truth, there is enough resources, productivity, and wealth that everyone's basic basic needs could be met and then some. But due to corporate greed and government inaction, the cost of everything from housing to food to health care to child care to education has become so prohibitively expensive that we have been forced into a modern day serfdom. You are worth so much more than this. Fight for yourself. Thank you for listening. 
Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. So thanks to our anonymous caller who called in about the subreddit anti-work. I had not heard of that before, but did a little digging and enjoyed it immensely. It's full of uh, lots of examples of mistreatment at work. For instance, the one that caught my eye immediately was one that it's one of the most classic cases of healthcare hostage taking I've ever seen. Like it's as explicit as I've ever seen it. Being a healthcare hostage is a, a term that I might have coined several years ago to describe being trapped in a job you hate because it provides health insurance, and if you didn't have to get your health insurance through your job, then you could quit your job and move on to something else while maintaining that insurance, like you could do in any other civilized nation aside from the U.S. And usually that threat is implicit, but this one became explicit And on that anti-work subreddit. A lot of it is screen captures of text message threads between employees and their bosses when things start to go south. And as the conversation started to turn south about whether or not the employee was going to come in on their day off, the boss wrote, are you sure you want to do this? You really want to put your health insurance on the line? (laughs) And so, yeah, as I said, that's usually implicit. They decided to go ahead and make that explicit. So what this reminded me of is to do a little bit more digging into labor in an age of pandemics, because I've heard for years in broad strokes about how the Black Death Plague impacted labor rights in Europe in really profound ways. But I finally just did some reading on the topic. So I have a couple excerpts from pretty decent articles for you. The first is very straightforward. Pandemics have long created labor shortages. Here's why from the Washington Post. And this just gives a quick overview of how the ruling class responded to labor shortages in the heart of the Black Death. So from the article, In England, the crisis led to the introduction of the first national labor laws, a response to worker demands for higher wages and better conditions after enduring dangerous work during the pandemic. To which I thought, wow, labor protection laws in the 1300s, that's that's great. I had no idea that they were so progressive and forward-thinking back then. But, you know, the pandemic was a big deal. I had to respond to it. Uh, no, the article continues. In response to the pandemic, the elite found new ways to repress workers and maintain a class hierarchy. Oh, shit. Okay, well, that, that does make more sense. So here's what the upper class said about this situation at the time. Quote, with so few workers left, survivors could scarcely be persuaded to serve the eminent unless for triple wages. Lords were forced to work their own fields and serve their own meals. The chronicler noted that laborers, meanwhile, could turn down employment offers thanks to the alms given out at funerals. Unquote. And so now, you know, a mere 700 years later, our modern day 
ruling class defenders of the rich have been making the exact same arguments about the terrible consequences of giving money to the poor at a time of great hardship. Of course, we can't have unemployment insurance giving out enough for people to live off of. They might decide to not work during a pandemic. So just to put a finer point on the fact that labor shortages were empowering workers, the article continues, the Rochester Chronicler declared that the new situation was, quote, an inversion of the natural order. The lowly were exalted and the great suffered. Another lamented that landlords were forced to, quote, pander to the arrogance and greed of the workers. So what did they do? Of course, here are the first labor laws. Quote, the 1349 Ordinance of Laborers mandated that all able-bodied workers under the age of 60 accept employment at the same wages they would have been paid before the plague in 1346. If they refused, they would be fined or jailed. It also forbade giving alms to able-bodied beggars on pain of imprisonment, unquote. So I, I guess... We should just count ourselves lucky that all they want to do is abolish the minimum wage today rather than create an actual wage ceiling and make it illegal to not work for that wage. So moving on to the next article, this is, For hundreds of years, pandemics have reshaped the way we work. And this is from Jacobin Magazine. And they start with the premise that, or, or the visualization that work should be added to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Quote, when we imagine the four horsemen of the apocalypse, we think of war, famine, pestilence, and death operating together to devastate human populations. But the current pandemic has shown there is a fifth rider in this malevolent troop, work. And the article goes on to draw the connections between how the dynamics of labor have been manipulated by the powerful in the wake of various pandemics to maintain or expand their power. Quote, while there are ongoing debates about how, when, and where capitalism began, two commonly mentioned factors are the establishment of the plantation slavery system in the Americas and the growth of a market-dependent working class in England, forced into the cities by the enclosures and other events. Both these new labor regimes came about, in part, through ruling class attempts to reassert their power over rebellious workers in the wake of pandemics. Unquote. And now skipping forward quite a lot toward the conclusion of the article after going through many examples from the Black Death in Europe to the plagues brought to the Americas through early colonialism and those distributed out of Asia during late colonialism, they get to this point, which actually ends up uh, connecting quite nicely with the topic of our episode today. Quote, it is in the health interests of urban workers to support the struggles of indigenous peoples living in tropical rainforests and other biodiverse regions to prevent the further encroachment of commercial loggers and poachers into these areas. This means supporting indigenous groups who are still resisting incorporation into capitalist extraction regimes, who are refusing to work for the fifth horseman. The COVID strikes in urban warehouses and the indigenous campaigns against mining in the Amazon are two sides of the same struggle over health and labor. 
we can take inspiration from how medieval peasants in England, Guarani communities in Paraguay, revolutionaries in Haiti, and dressmakers in New York fought for both the right to better paid work and the right to not work at all amid devastating disease outbreaks. The ongoing global wave of strikes by workers protecting their health amid the coronavirus pandemic, the campaign by Brazilian indigenous peoples to install checkpoints near their communities to maintain social isolation, along with international demands to decommercialize aged care, are the modern-day continuation of this global tradition. Rather than forgetting these past generations, we can draw strength from their victories as we enter our own battle against the five horsemen of the capitalist apocalypse. So yes, the caller is absolutely right. Now is very much the time to demand our labor rights, join any campaign you can to demand better wages and working conditions, and fundamentally change the way we design our labor system. Because if history can be our teacher in this case, what we know for sure, and it has already started, is that the ruling class is certainly going to try to use this opportunity to change our labor system for the worse, to the detriment of the worker, and thanks to our knowledge of how pandemics work, I can say that it will be to the detriment of the health of every human being. As always, I would love to hear your comments on this or anything else. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on our website and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Bestofleft.com